Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our critic series, I am joined by a new interlocutor, Joshua Steinman, to talk about my favorite comedy of the last decade, at least, the Coen Brothers' Hail Caesar. It's a movie about 50s Hollywood. It's a movie about uh, the older America, the civil religion, as we sometimes call it, the way of life of American Christians and trying to make that into a compelling spectacle while dealing with all of the realities of life and business and so on. And uh, as with most Coen Brothers movies, it has a a tinge of the absurd, but also an obsessive care about the, the American past. In this case, a large number of genres that were once Hollywood spectacular offerings and have since disappeared from the Western to the musical. So we will try to make the case that this movie is the thing you should watch and the thing that maybe should uh, make you think about what Hollywood could be again. But uh, so much for my introduction of the movie. Joshua, please, since it's your first time on the podcast, tell us about yourself, introduce yourself, and tell us about how come you fell in love with this movie. Thanks, Titus. It's it's great to be here, and I am very excited to talk about probably my favorite movie in the world, as it sounds like it may be yours. Hail Caesar. Uh, for listeners at home, my name's Josh. I'm an entrepreneur, co-founder and CEO of a company called Galvanic, and we do industrial cybersecurity. That means we secure big industrial facilities against cyber attacks. So you can think of things like a Tesla Gigafactory. If you've ever seen video of those facilities as they build the cars, it's essentially filled with very advanced robots. They can be pressing metal. They can be assembling parts. All those things are connected to the Internet. And frankly, they're vulnerable to malicious activity. So we protect those things against bad things happening. Before this, I was a senior staffer at the White House. I worked for President Trump for four years as the senior policymaker in the United States government on all matters regarding cyber and cybersecurity. Those are two things. Telecommunications supply chain and cryptocurrency. So that was from the first day in January 2017 to the last day of the advent in 2021. Before that, I was an entrepreneur in business. And then before that, I was in the I was in the military. And I love film, although I don't watch enough of it. Frankly, I don't watch really any of it. Uh, But I grew up loving film. I grew up loving music. New piece of information. I don't think I've ever talked about this. I'm on the Xena Warrior Princess soundtrack. Uh, as a child. And so all of these things have always fascinated me. Musicals, I grew up going to musicals. My parents were big in the musical theater. So all those things sort of congeal here in, in Hail Caesar, national security, America, music, film, art, philosophy. Yeah, that's hilarious. I had no idea. Oh. <laughs> oh, it's the first time um, I've ever said it in, in public and even on Twitter. Wow. Yeah. But very the song is called... Yeah, the song's called Solstice Night, and I was in the chorus, and they paid me $100. And, uh, yeah. I think that's legit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so let me uh, say a few words about the movie, since it is not as famous as it should be. It came out in 2016. This was uh, quite a success critically, and uh, it's the sort of thing that is turning into a cult film, as we used to say. 
it got a few award nominations, but minor things like somebody nominated for the Oscars for production design. I guess it's better than no Oscar nominations, but it doesn't do much to to spread word. Maybe you know it's 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 better to look at the stellar cast. George Clooney is in this, Ray Fine, Scarlett Johansson, Tilda Swinton, uh, Josh Brolin, the, the the protagonist, and all sorts of other uh, famous actors in larger and smaller roles. So that it's it's very funny to pick them out and funny to see who they represent historically in Hollywood as well, since it's about that time when you could say a, a new post-war Hollywood was being created that was quite different from the from the early years, uh, even of the sound era. So as with many Coen Brothers movies, you get all of these historical vignettes, you get all of these cameos by celebrities. It's somehow a movie about the movies, about the movie stars, a movie about their roles and their past and so on. So there's there's always something to notice, something to think about, something when you watch the movie again, you think, huh, I hadn't noticed that part before. Or you talk it over with a friend and he noticed something you didn't. It seems to be why they're so enduringly popular among people who like to talk about film. And presumably it has to do with the fact that they grew up, the Coen brothers, in the era of VCR and, uh, and, and therefore the video store. You could go get cassettes. You could discover all sorts of things. One genre would be next to another. Your friends or somebody else would uh, tell you, give you recommendations. Things got mixed up and you also felt that there was a lot on offer and it encouraged a kind of joy and comedy and mixing up, which the movie is all about. So I think it captures that experience that I had at the tail end of in the 90s, but more characteristically an 80s thing. And that generation, I think somehow a very Gen X film experience, as with other video store filmmakers like famously Quentin Tarantino, but of course so many others besides. So with the stars and the jumbled genres, now very briefly, the plot of the movie is a day in the life of Eddie Mannix, played by Josh Brolin. This guy is a studio fixer at Capital Pictures. He's based on a real character, Eddie Mannix. You can go read up on him online. He was not a nice guy. Josh Brolin plays a much more Hollywoodian, if you will, beautified version of this studio fixer. But still, there's a lot of fun and some harshness. He starts the movie and more or less ends the movie by slapping people around, which is hilarious. Uh, I'm not going to spoil who gets slapped, but it's it's, it's very funny and in a way rewarding, uh, very satisfying to see. And so in this 24 hours, bracketed not just by the slapping around, but by going to confession, he's a very Catholic guy. He has to deal with three kinds of things. First of all, getting the movies made, figuring out what's happening on various productions, doing the work of an executive, keeping a lot of balls in the air. The second thing he has to do is solve national security problem. All of a sudden, communists show up in the midst of Hollywood and hilarious hijinks ensue. And the third thing is he has to deal with his own future. He's got a wife and kids who need help uh, figuring out what they want to play in baseball. And he has to decide who will he work for. Is he going to stick it out in Hollywood and the American Dream Machine? Or is he going to go into industry, into hardware, into rockets, into atomic bombs? After all, he's a manager, he's an executive. These skills are in a certain way transferable. He's a leader of men. And the men are more real and less fake in engineering than in Hollywood. And so these are the three things in Eddie Mannix's life. And they are mixed 
in the story with great care and at the end especially you can see these three plot lines mixed as they are becoming resolved with shorter and shorter scenes in the old Hollywood style of cutting and and to bring everything to a climax and so somehow uh, between these three stories a lot of america from the suburban family home to the development of nuclear technology and rocketeering and everything in between is included it's not a biopic it's not really exactly about the movies but uh, all of 50s america and therefore the kinds of things that came out of it its consequences are on display and it's 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 in that sense the coen brothers movie that most cares to show that America to show it in a beautiful but also funny and sometimes brutally realistic way and make us think about where we come from. So this is my introduction to the plot and now Josh let's just talk about the movie and spoil everything in sight. Absolutely. What a great introduction Titus is great. I think the first thing that I would note based on your introduction is that from from my perspective this is as much a film about Hollywood and Los Angeles as it is about the movies. And the reason why I say that is because and I live here in Los Angeles, moved here about 18 months ago. Our companies here, well, our kitchen companies in Seattle, but our we have an office here. And one of the things that you realize when you get to Los Angeles is that everyone thinks LA is a movie town. And it certainly is and can be. But it's two other things as well, one of which plays into this film, one of which kind of doesn't. The first thing is it's an oil town, and that's been covered in other films. But the second is that it's probably one of the biggest aerospace towns in the United States. In fact, you drive to LAX and Point South, and I mean, at least today, there is an aerospace renaissance that's happening, whether it's SpaceX or the National Defense Primes. Northrop Grumman, Raytheon, etc. And those legacy aerospace companies have been here in the LA area since the Second World War and before. And so it's to me also a film about a man choosing his fate and understanding who he is deeply and what he wants to do with his life. and it's against this backdrop of this grand strategic struggle in between two ideologies that for me are epitomized by Hobie Doyle who's the cowboy right a, an amazing american archetype of the 19th century and the early 20th century a man who imposes order on chaos who goes out into the west of the united states and creates a productive environment for people to flourish in You have Hobie Doyle, and then you have uh, what's his what's the what's the um, No Dames character uh, who ends up defecting to the Soviet Union. Uh, yeah, the the uh, Channing Tatum does this. Yeah, Bert, Bert Gurney. Bert Gurney, that's right. So you have these two philosophical archetypes, right? You have Hobie Doyle, streetwise. and he's a physical man right and and there's a physicality to him in the same way there's a physicality to Burt Gurney to the Channing Tatum character and one in my mind represents that you know ultimate western mentality that ultimate occidental mentality uh, and then the other is a perversion of it the Burt Gurney character who we find out later is sort of tied into this interesting social underworld in Hollywood 
and then also has essentially become the manifestation of the communist infiltration of Hollywood, an absolutely real thing, and has decided to defect. And it seems like he's done that for very deeply personal reasons, right? He's maybe dissatisfied with his career. He's dissatisfied with the social environment he has to be in. And so these two these two men sort of come to a head and they don't even really come to a head, but they sort of embody what's happening in Hollywood at the time. Right. You have the 1950s. You have the Cold War, this fight between the United States and the Soviet Union, which is both happening in the world of technology, which is offered to Eddie Mannix. Right. It is offered to him to join that world. And there's a conflict in between the psychological world, the storytelling world, the movie world, right? You could call it propaganda, but you could also call it entertainment. It's definitely both. And so you have those fights happening as well. You have Soviet filmmakers and artists and American filmmakers and artists battling it out. And Mannix has to decide which fight he wants to fight, but that also has to do with which fight he's best equipped to fight. And that's one of the reasons why I just love this film, because over the course of the film and from my, you know, from my perspective, he has to come to grips with who he is and where his talents are best used. And to me, it's a it's a deeply Christian concept and it's a deeply, therefore, Western concept of what am I best equipped to do? Right. How does God want me to utilize my talents? And so that's one of the reasons why I love the film. Uh, yeah, I think that's very well put. And, uh, you know, if we were, so to speak, reading a book in a seminar, this is what we'd get to. How does this personal problem of the American man in the post-war situation lead to a real statement of the political theological problem of America? Where mm -hmm. does God fit into things? Where does politics fit into things? Where does entertainment or does technology fit into all of these things? And this is what the movie is really about. It's as smart as people say about Coen Brothers movies. And we're trying to excavate that, to bring that out from, you know, the, the stuff that uh, you, you'll see, be amused by, be surprised by, but maybe put down or move on from a little too soon. And I think you're right. If you look at this uh, Channing Tatum uh, singing uh, musical type guy, Bert Gurney, he's in a Navy musical show. And, you know, it's it's uh, as with many musicals, vaguely homoerotic. And you wonder what the hell is that about? <laughs> Not even and, vaguely. It's explicitly. And you know it was right, written like, by I mean, those, it's, you like know it was written to, by those yeah, something, uh, uh, you know, it's subtle compared to YMCA. Let's put it that way. Sure. Sure, sure. It, and and of course it has to do with his personal life but also has something weird to do with you know what's the this guy is not just a gay musical dude he is also a communist spy uh, he embodies a version of american manliness the navy man the world war years the amazing pacific war right but yeah. uh what what is left of that it, it's become a musical story it's kind of a joke yeah. it doesn't yeah. really do anything and if you're looking for a cause if you're somehow moved by the beauty of the Navy, by the old, uh, you know, struggle, you might go in for another kind of cause. You might go in, in this case, for communism. There, you know, that that brings up one major issue in the movie. You know, brotherhood. What kinds of brotherhood are there? Soldiers, yeah. obviously. You know, there's a kind of code of men of honor. But you know, there's also a communist brotherhood, the mm -hmm. international. 
and and so on and so forth. There are various levels to this that you're supposed to be clued into. And the story tries very hard to say, okay, look at this guy and his personal problem as a gay man in Hollywood, but also in America. Is he really a manly man? People like to look at him that way, but it's fake. But also, of course, the, the political problem with espionage and communism and the Cold War, and also how, how this looks like for Americans. What is the public image of the military that's triumphant, splendid, but it's ended up sort of kind of a fake story. Hollow. Nothing yeah. is happening. And it's that's really... on the one side, and on the other side is, as you say, Hobie Doyle. This guy, very different. He goes on dates. He falls for this Hispanic lady, uh, sort of like, you know, uh, John Wayne had a habit of marrying Mexican women. Not hard to understand, I would say. <laughs> and he's not glamorous. Hobie Doyle came up the hard way, lost his teeth in a rodeo. He, he worked his way in Hollywood from doing stuff around to riding to becoming the uh, bad guy or the, the, the sidekick to becoming the protagonist because they learned he could sing. And and finally, he had something beautiful to offer. He does amazing stunts. He can play guitar. Uh, you know, yeah. all of a sudden, America is interested. You got to charm people in America. You got to sell yourself. You got to mm-hmm. get out there and entertain. And through this all, he has maintained this sort of cowboy view of life that there's a lot of stuff you have to do. You have to be square with people. Very workmanlike attitude. Not at all artistic, and unlike, of course, the guy with the gay communist secret, Hobie Doyle doesn't really have secrets. He's a simpler kind of guy because you could say he grew up outdoors. He cares about mm-hmm. the world, doesn't obsess about himself. Mm-hmm. And so it makes mm-hmm. it easier for him to fall in love with a woman or to be loyal to a man like Eddie Mannix. Yeah, it's really interesting because as I think about it, and I'm just cued off this from what you said, Mannix only really confides in two people. His priest and Hobie Doyle. And these are men that also, you know, exemplify this type of purity of soul, of heart and directness. Right. Hobie walks in to the office after the Clooney character has been kidnapped and he immediately knows something's wrong with Eddie. And he just comes out and says it like, what's going on, Mr. Mannix? And, you know, obviously Eddie's got the money that he's trying to buy the guy back with. And Mannix makes a snap decision about whether or not he can trust Hobie and brings him into his confidence in a way in which he, you know, confides in his priest. And this, to me, again, it echoes of that of that previous era without the type of subterfuge that is required by secret organizations to try and, you know, infect and and manipulate a society. It's a very open and direct and it's just a different way. It's just a different way of doing business. I love it. Yeah, exactly. This man-to-man thing turns out to be so important for the movie and maybe for the future of America. One of mm-hmm. these genre jokes in the movies that is very revealing is the genres of Hobie Doyle. He's a singing cowboy, you know, Roy mm-hmm. Rogers sort of guy. And mm-hmm. uh, then, uh, you know, the, the studio boss, Mr. Skank, he wants him to become leading man in a interior mm-hmm. drama where no, uh, everybody's in taxis and gowns and yeah. there are adulteries and sufferings and all of yeah. these secrets and all of the gossip that that's glamorous, you know. And yeah. he just does not fit in at all. He does not understand why do people do these things or how do yeah. you do it. He cannot imitate it. He's no good yeah. at this stuff. He doesn't look good in a tux. He walks like a westerner. He struts. Can't help it. Uh, he does well, not glide so over simple. the floors. Yeah. So that's not him. And that's not the role of this kind of American man in the future. 
He cannot yeah. be turned into a kind of wasp ideal, an imitation of a British gentleman, something like that. But he can do something else, you know, uh, as as um, Eddie Mannix's right hand. He can turn from cowboy to detective, which is what happened to these manly men and the but, roles in the movies, right? But by the way, he isn't even he isn't even doing it really at Mannix's request, right? Like Mannix tells him what's going on, and he, you know he offers to help with the belt or something like that. But then he's on the date. Later, and he sees, right? So of his own volition, without direct enlistment by Mr. Mannix, he's like, wait a second. This is the thing that Eddie, who I care about, was disturbed about. That is the object. There is something going on here. And I am now going to try and figure out what's going on, right? There is right. There is wrong. I know this is vaguely probably wrong. And I'm going to go investigate it. And it's direct. He doesn't ask for permission, he just goes out and does it. It's this, you know, one of my favorite essays in the world called A Message to Garcia. It's like, and, and he hasn't even been given a message. He just knows that this is going on. It's a threat that one of his colleagues has been kidnapped and he just goes after it. And it's great. Yeah. He has one of these really cool lines from the movie, you know, uh, they, they kidnapped Bear Goodlock. This is bad for yep. movie stars everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, yeah. it's hilarious, but you know it's uh, Hobby Doe is a fairly simple guy, but yeah. uh, fairly sharp. He notices things, and uh, indeed he promotes himself to private detective in an yeah. LA situation again, right? Like the noir or other crime detective stories, and mm-hmm. he turns out to be very suited for the job precisely because, as you say, he acts on his own cognizance, he acts on his own right. discretion, he right. follows his hunches with a bit of care. And, uh, we, and nevertheless, he's decisive. If we were to apply the sort of Joseph Campbell hero's journey to Hobie Doyle, and obviously the story is really about Eddie Mannix and his own hero's journey. But if we were to apply it to Hobie Doyle, it's that, you know, he's called to action by Eddie. Right. And that's what that's what exposes him right to this wider world beyond, you know, lazy old moon epic song, by the way, uh, you know, beyond this world that he knows, though, but it were so simple, et cetera you know, where he's a passive NPC in this play. And he be, he gets that main character energy. I'm using sort of modern Twitter-esque language here. But he becomes his own main character. He comes into his own when he realizes, wait a second, uh, you know, there is something going on here in this wider world of Los Angeles. And I see it and I can fix it. And Eddie's told me about something. He's spurred, you know, he's spurred my mind on And, you know, really what he does in that moment, because it's obviously a setup, right? Eddie has hooked him up with Carlita. Is that her name? The woman, the, the, the Hispanic woman that he's, that he's dating or set up on a date. Something like that. So Eddie, you know, and, and, and you can read about old Hollywood and this is what these agents and fixers used to do. You know, they want to keep these stars in the, in the, in the paper. And so it's like, hey, why don't you go out on a date with this starlet or do this? And then they leak that to one of the sisters. Hey, right. the gossip columnists, the head of columnists. Exactly. So Hobie's job has been to go on this date that night with Carlita. That is his job. He doesn't really understand it. Maybe he does. Right. And he's there and he's doing what he's supposed to do. He's kind of romancing her. And there's this moment where, again, he sort of escapes from that. Uh, from that cycle, right, where he sees, wait a second, this isn't about and, – and who knows if he even makes this decision or even really knows it, but this is like the character growth. Like all of a sudden, 
he takes an action that you would not expect passive movie star to take. And he takes affirmative ownership over shaping reality. Again, it's just the whole movie such a dream, but I love I love that scene and the and the scenes that immediately come after it. Yeah, I think that's right. This guy, uh, you know, he's the only one who really moves around through all of these things, trying to figure through all of these settings, through all of these Hollywood setups. You know, everything is something of an illusion, but yeah. uh, he works his way through it and tries to figure it out for himself. And this too has to do with the kind of American he is and the kind of man he is. You know, mm-hmm. he, he takes counsel with Eddie Mannix and gives a sign of how he thinks. They know now that there is a conspiracy. Somebody kidnapped a movie star, George Clooney, Baird mm-hmm. Whitlock. Baird Whitlock, yeah. uh, you know, He's in this big, big production, Swords and Sandals, Christian epic, sort of a Ben Hur thing. And, what does he call it? Uh, he calls it a prestige picture. Mm-hmm, right, like a prestige uh, picture. That's prestige all it is, picture. right? It's yeah. the prestige. And yeah. and so they have to save this guy. And who did it? Who is the problem? And you see yeah. immediately that Hobie Doyle embodies an older America because he says, look, worry about the extras. Look for the extras. Everybody else it. on a production, I know yeah. these people. Day in, yeah. day out, we work together, we trust each other. They wouldn't be it. But there are people who can walk in, you never notice, you know, you're too busy or you look down on them because they're just extras. But that's where the problem is. That's where the weakness yeah. is. That's where the movie community or the America could have trouble. And yeah. indeed, it, ter- it turns out that he's right. You know, yeah. he, he underestimates how much, you know, trouble there is, how much resentment, how much uh, room for conflict. But he's exactly right about uh, where you should look to find your culprit. And yeah. so you can see even before he goes detecting as a detective, he has the mindset for it. And mm-hmm. partly that's just, uh, you know, loving his own thing. He loves uh, the movies. He loves the, the company. He does his part exactly like Eddie Mannix. And he knows he also has to watch out and protect it, right? That you trust the people you know, but that also means you kind of mistrust strangers, at least until they prove themselves. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. turns out to be the key to the movie, as opposed to, of course, the other thing that we all know about Hollywood. It's all about love of the beautiful. It's all about glamour. And most of it is lies. Yeah. Or at least propped up and furthered by people that understand that facade, right? And understand that it is lies and therefore the lies are able to create the beauty. There's a, there's beauty in that, right? The Eddie Mannix is. And that's sort of where I feel like the film resolves out for Eddie, where he kind of understands that he's not ever going to go work at Lockheed Martin or that he'd be unhappy because that's a world filled with Hobie Doyles. Those guys are building rockets, atomic bombs, right? That guy brings him to the Chinese restaurant. And, you know, discloses, you know, a bikini atoll, et cetera. And Eddie, I think, understands that he's like a sheepdog. And it's that moment of him, like, come, or not moment, but several moments of him coming to this realization that that is his sort of mantle, right? That he's not a battlefield commander, but he's a sheepdog or something like that. I, I don't know how to describe it in words. No, yeah, that's very good. That's the point. It's like you see in the scenes with Hobie Doyle and Carlotta. Hobie amuses her with his lasso and with his pasta lasso and all of this nonsense that, you know, he likes to make the girl laugh. You got to make a girl laugh, right? That's how it works. But uh, but also his eyes are always peeled. And so when he sees danger, he recognizes the case full of money. You know, uh, the, the that's how you do. You follow the money. He literally follows the money, right? That's what the movies say. Uh, the, he's a paying attention because he is, uh, the, the, the sheepdog. 
and uh, you know this like him with the beautiful woman so also with Eddie Mannix and the studio that makes all of these beautiful pictures he really loves them but he knows that they need protection he knows that some of these people do crazy things and it's up to him to fix it as best he can and it is that sense of possession coupled with the fact that he can't help but think that what he makes his making or helps make is beautiful and it's not something he himself can do it's these other guys who do make the pictures yeah. and they're really good at what they're doing they're really good at giving you a vision of america as this beautiful almost paradise they're yes. giving they're good at yes. impersonating glamour but they are precisely for that reason not serious people not necessarily trustworthy and it takes these kinds of men who immediately can tell they can trust each other like Eddie Mannix and Hobie mm-hmm. Thornhill to fix this problem mm-hmm. somebody has got to run mm-hmm. herd here and you know I'd be remiss if we didn't and I know, I'm not trying to say we have a short amount of time left but but I also want to sort of dig into the fact that I I every time I watch this film and it, I've probably watched aside from this and White Christmas uh, and maybe like two or three other films. It's the only film that I can always watch. And that means maybe I've seen it six or seven times, but that's a lot for me. I've probably seen this film the most of any film. And whenever someone asks me about it from sort of my own social circles, people that see the world the way that I do, I always say, I don't understand how they got this made. And I think, and it's almost like they pulled one over on the studio because Herbert Marcusa is the actual bad guy. I'm shocked. I'm shocked that they were able to bring in the father of American cultural Marxism, you know, social and sexual Marxism, you know, racial Marxism, and bring him in and reveal him to be the sort of progenitor of the underground movement that is driving this whole thing. And so, I don't know, I'd love for us to sort of maybe shift gears a little bit and just talk about that and talk about, you know, the conspiracy a little bit. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, we, we've done this a bit uh, upside down, that the solving the crime rather than the crime. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's that's the oddest choice in the movie. You know, it's it's making fun of these communists and at the same time revealing that this was just stuff going on. These people were in bed with the the USSR. They were obviously very stupid people. But again, like it's actors in Hollywood and a lot of other people in Hollywood, writers in this case, yeah. they're a lot stupider than they seem. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And uh, craven and jealous. Okay. So, you know, yeah. there's, uh, you know, not a lot of defense even in their own heart, so to speak, against human weakness. You could say the first thing that the movie reveals by comedy, by mocking their communism, is that they live in fantasy land. They have no idea what they're playing with, but, uh, but they do that. it because Say they're safe. What do you mean? Right? Like these people. Yeah prophesy communism and plan out their little uh, takeover of Hollywood. Uh, they're going to kidnap a star. They're going to do something from a villa in Mal- Malibu. You know, I, I'm a writer. I'm aware that getting paid for words is a problem. It's just a, much stranger than you realize, right? In America, we like to say, look, writing is a job. It's work. It's not. It's certainly not. It's mm-hmm. something. It's useful. It can be education. Mm-hmm. It can be something important, but that doesn't make it work. And and pretending otherwise is encouraging this fantasy that dude wrote a story and now he gets a villa. This could encourage yeah. him to think, what other things can I do with words? How much more can I get? You know, can I conjure up not just the, the picture, but can I conjure up this entire fantasy of communism? In my mind, I don't have to deal with Stalin's purges or the, or the horrors of the USSR. I can just have a fantasy land of communism. So, uh, it, and, and of course, that's, that is the danger, you could say, in Hollywood. It is the fantasy land of America or the core of fantasy land. 
And uh, for that reason, it can encourage all sorts of fantasizing. It can encourage people yeah. to put their beautiful visions above the harsh truths that you see embodied mm-hmm. to the extent comedy can, of course, by people like yeah. Eddie Mannix and Hobie Doyle. It can, you can end up perverting America. So, you know, one of the beautiful jokes in the movie is that this uh, silly bunch of communists with their dancer, uh, you know, musical star Bert Gurney, they're rowing in a boat and it is an row. imitation of Washington <laughs> crossing the Delaware, right? The famous painting. Yeah. Yep. They think yep. at some level that that's what they're doing. In a way, they learned yeah. about America, about the revolution, about modernity, the rights of man. But be, partly yeah. because they're sissies, uh, you know, they, they've turned this into a fantasy where that that's actually communism. It's not George Washington. It's a mm-hmm. communist spy they're all about. It's a particular weakness in America since, you know, you start talking about the, your rights, you might never stop. Yeah. You might end up thinking that the revolution is a story you tell, not a war you fight. Right. They impersonate and the it's painting. interesting because the whole the whole plot, right, the whole the whole kidnapping of Baird Whitlock ends up as impotent as communism because the hundred thousand dollars gets dropped into the ocean, never to be put to use. So, you know, I just think that that whole scene, you know, the dog, little yapping dog, by the way, it's an interesting little fact. I think it's the U-boat captain is Dolph Lundgren in an unacknowledged cameo. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But yeah, you know, it's like this whole thing, their whole their whole effort, kidnapping, all the risk that they've taken, it all's for naught. And instead, the defection is about hurt himself. The communism starts with these resentful writers. And it reminds us, as Oppenheimer did this summer, that the educated elite of America in the first half of the 20th century was largely communist. Yeah. It, it was yeah. at any rate more common to be a card carrying communist than to be openly anti-communist if you had a college degree. And yeah. that shows that already the American way of life had become massively weakened because the elites America produced were on their way to a fantasy. They couldn't believe in America, but they could believe in the communist revolution and socialism and, uh, you know, the, the brotherhood of man, the classless society, all of this nonsense. A world people with uh, people as soft as themselves, but who wouldn't, uh, you know, have to be as troubled by their conscience or so on. So, and, and I think, you know, that it's not an accident that after communism, the fantasy of the upper classes of America became Freudianism. You need a shrink. Uh, you might not mm-hmm. be able to believe anymore in the brotherhood of man, but you still have all of the psychic damage. You know, you still yeah. suffer all of these weaknesses you can deal with that by way of therapy while still retaining some kind of claim to scientific superiority and transforming the future. It's, it's and Marcusa, you know, people who are on top and, of America, but not in charge of America. And Marcusa himself, right, coming out of Frankfurt School, coming over from Germany in that interwar period, bringing with him all of these all of these folks, I might describe them as pre, like Freudians or pre-Freudians or something like that. But it's like, it's interesting to see you see that you see that migration right here, and it's obvious that he's been at work. And obviously, I think Marcuso was what at the New School, is that right? And then he went to like Berkeley. I can't remember where he went, but you know, it's very clear that he's already been at work for many years. And it's 1951-ish in the film. And so, in Marcuso's, I mean, real life, Marcuso has been in the United States for 20 or 30 years at this point, and and these are the sort of fruits of his labor. Right. And of his students labor 
the cultural Marxists who've tried to bring over these peculiarities, these peculiar philosophies, and insinuate them into the American upper class. Yeah, exactly. And the thing is that, uh, you know, he is a European, uh, German educated guy, the top of the educational pyramid. You know, Germany invented the research university, invented all of these various 19th century, 20th century transformative ideas, everything from modern science, relativity, quantum, all the way to the other side to, you know, the, the ideas in the humanities, social sciences, etc. All of it comes out of Germany. And Marcuse is, in a certain sense, the inheritor of this, but also very much a half-rate guy. He was not as serious a thinker as the people who, you know, really made up the Frankfurt School, especially Theodor Adorno, who also partly Americanized. But most of those guys went back to Europe after World War II because they, could, they realized, like, there's nothing to do in America for people who have these theoretical concerns. The country really, really and truly does not care. And uh, and instead, Marcuse is the guy who stayed and by, you know, a bit of bad luck for the world, became very popular at the end of the 60s for these dumb but, you know, very persuasive books about transforming America and the world in the direction of a new revolution, a new kind of Marxist revolution, but not Marxist. And the reason this is, guys, uh, interesting is because it does... He does show in himself the same transformation we're talking about in the elites of Hollywood, that they went from this sort of socialism to Freudianism. The Marcuse and other, these other people, the Frankfurt School, were the first Marxists to face the fact that Marxist analysis is stupid, that uh, you know it doesn't really work as economics or what do you think that will transform about politics, but it's stupid. It does not give you an account of human doings. It, it, there's no self-understanding in it. And at that point, Marxism was in fact abandoned. And we invented this new kind of uh, neo-Marxism, cultural Marxism, and, and it's a Marxism all about race, it's a Marxism about sex, it's a Marxism sex, about yeah. transforming uh, human nature so that there's no more conflict, so that there's finally sameness, unity, you know, simplicity. But it turns out to be all about the things that Marx had never considered because he thought they were immaterial. Right. The Marxist teaching is that science is economics. Material production is what counts. In that sense, the only Marxist statement that counts is, is one that, uh, you know, should give pause to Americans. Marx is the man who claimed that technology is the agent of the revolution, not ideology. Ideology is a joke. Technology transforms things. Technology has replaced every previous political or moral or religious system by upending relationships of production and uh, liberating man from poverty, disease, etc., etc., etc. That Marxism is strangely close to, you know, liberalism to any number of modern teachings that, that claim we can liberate ourselves from our troubles. The conquest of nature is doable and we should be fully dedicated to it. Marxism, in that sense, is just adds a moral dimension to it in saying that as we conquer nature, we should all be nice to each other. But this was transformed by uh, the people who educated Marcuse into a very different teaching that we now know, right? In America, people are mistakenly of the opinion that Marxism is about power. It's not. It's about technology and economics. We we think about power because of the Soviet Union, which, you know, is, is a very different thing. It just happened. The Soviet Union just happened. There was no need. There was no Marxist pre prediction that somehow the Soviet Union should become a thing. It's just an accident of history. But it made us think that Marxism is about power and it made us misunderstand what it is that these Frankfurt School types are talking about when they're talking about power. You know, if you read philosophy, 
power is the language of Nietzsche. The, the complexities of the soul, the struggle, that is Nietzschean language. It is not Marx. Compared to that, Marx just seems dumb. So he doesn't even know real and, you know, people are real. And so the attraction of the, you know, Frankfurt School cultural Marxism, all this shit, you know, systems of power, oppression, uh, it, it, it's, it's sort of like gossip. It's bringing out ugly secrets. That's the language of psychology. It's the language of Friedrich Nietzsche, not Marx. And Marcuse was the first guy to popularize that in America and therefore to reveal that these are not people who can believe in science anymore. These are not people who believe in the Marxist perversion of enlightenment. They believe now in another perversion that is anti-enlightenment. They just can't square with themselves. On the one hand, they want a kind of Marxist egalitarianism. On the other hand, the only thing they can believe in is power, which is radically inegalitarian and Nietzschean. And uh, this contradiction has made the, uh, you know, cultural Marxism, Marcuse, somewhat hard to deal with, but in, in another way, also very easy to caricature, as you see in the movie, by bringing out how ridiculous these people are. They're trying to play a bunch of writers trying to play mind games with this stupid uh, celebrity. And, you know, the thing is, probably mm-hmm. that's what Marcuse did with them, played mind games with them because they're simpler Americans. They may have gone to college, but they don't have a tradition like Germans do in the university. And you play these mind games with people and therefore reproduce the dialectics of power and you can enslave their mind, so to speak. And and they're all under the delusion that that's egalitarians. We're going to we're going to get a fairer shake. It's not egalitarianism. It's domination of the mind. It's inegalitarian. And it is also interesting you know, that again, we come back to this major thematic dichotomy in between the aerospace industry and the film industry with these two types of, uh, you know, the, the Nietzschean and the Marxist sort of modalities of control. And, you know, at least for me living here and frankly working and actually done a little or very little bit of work in the film industry just on the side. I helped to produce a documentary and just having seen the way in which that and then my day job, which is very much, you know, hard industry, aerospace, et cetera. It's just interesting to see because they're, you know, those two cultures are very distinct. They're separate. You can't talk in one the way that you talk in the other. You can't communicate in one the way that you communicate in the other. And again, this comes down to Eddie choosing which environment he wants to inhabit and which environment in which he thinks he can do the most good. And doing the most good for him is a place where he's going to feel at home and, and feel, you know, embodied as a, as a man. And, you know, I think people say as a man today and often they mean that in a sort of snide way. But for Eddie, it's about you know, his own telos, his own higher purpose, his own, you know, aims as a biological creature. Yeah, I think part of the the setting back in the 50s and uh, telling the movie as a bit of a fable with the recently deceased uh, Michael Gambon doing wonderful narration allows us Mm -hmm. a bit of not just beautification, but earnestness. It allows us to portray a man like Eddie Mannix and show that honestly, this guy believes in serving the studio boss. He believes in serving the American people through what he's doing. That's part of what makes him a man. He commands the people below him, but he takes care of them. But he mm-hmm. also obeys the people above him. That's right. And he, he, he always has this in the back of his mind that he's so to speak divided between man and God. You know, yeah. this world is full of nasty things and you have to take care of them. And if that's true, then, you know, it can't be such a good world. 
Yeah. It's if there's so much stuff, you know, no rest for him. It's a hard world to deal with for a man because he is morally serious. This yeah. is presented somewhat comically, but if you think about what the comedy is trying to teach you, it says that there's a problem in moral seriousness. You want to fix yeah. problems. You want to think hard about the dangers and protect the innocent or the weak. But then you ask yourself, why is there so much screwing up? Why is there yeah. so much weakness, so much corruption? And that leads him to this other matter, to, to belief in God. There's yeah. got to be an overarching providence that makes sense of our ability and need to take care of things, but also the, the, the endless drama. It never stops. And, uh, and, and in a way, it's, his, it's, it's this moment of crisis of conscience trying to figure out what his place is in the grand scheme of things. And he realizes that he does believe in his fellow Americans and in God, and he wants to make this work. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so he settles back into this Hollywood thing and tries to keep it working. And of course, this is only, you would say, a political, a temporary solution. Actually, all of these Marcusians will end up being vastly influential than Mannix, right? Actually, yeah. the studio system, as we know, is going to collapse and not all the cowboys turn detective like Dirty Harry can fix it. It's, He's a man uh, against an inevitability that we all know it, is coming. Exactly. And yet he still chooses. I mean, at least from the from the yeah. from the and there's something noble in that perspective. That's right. That's right. Like we all know what he's up against and that he's choosing a losing battle. But he doesn't know that. And there's something heroic from our perspective in the fact that he's still choosing, you know, the right thing, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But, you know, from his perspective, too, since he's uncertain of the outcome, he yes. must choose seriously. Now, you know, it's a good question. He had he known. Had he known with that certainty what the future would bring, would he have chosen differently? I'm not sure. I think it's somehow of the essence of the noble go down fighting. Yes. And if you think yes. about it, uh, in our generation of young conservative men, it's, this has become something like as common as saying hello. Yeah. You it's really funny. need to know this one thing. Will you go down swinging? Yeah. I've talked about this with some friends and I'm, I'm sort of working on a thesis. I don't know if I'll write about it. Maybe I'll tweet about it. But what I, what I say is there's a difference in between merchants and aristocrats. And what do I mean by that? I mean, true aristocrats are willing to take risk apart from perceived advantage. It's like they take risk because it's quote unquote the right thing to do. Whereas merchants take risk in order to potentially achieve reward. You know, this is like I'm on these group chats with other founders of tech startups, many of them in the in the sort of aerospace defense, hard tech space. And this is that I tell, you know, the the example that I give is Mark Zuckerberg versus Elon Musk. Zuckerberg is a merchant. Musk is an aristocrat. And Musk certainly, you know, we can we can have a debate over electric cars. I'm not a fan. I don't drive one. But he certainly is at least if you give him the benefit of the doubt, doing things that he thinks are right, right? He's going up against the power structure. He's willing to take a $22 billion write down buying Twitter, doing things because he thinks they're right. They certainly do provide a material benefit or they can or they might, but it's different, right? And it's a different attitude. And again, it goes back to Hobie Doyle's choice, right? Hobie Doyle's choice. And you know, again, the word merchant doesn't do justice to any of these things, but Hobie's job is to stay on that date. But he makes an aristocratic decision to pursue the evil, right? And he doesn't know what risk it will bring him personally 
or professionally, and he makes that choice. And the same thing with Mannix. I'm sure there's greater, there are certainly far greater benefits to be had going to work for the Lockheed Corporation. I mean, you just look at the stock from 1951. I don't even know if it was publicly traded at the time. But certainly Eddie's choice in terms of remuneration would have been better. But he makes the decision to do the thing that calls him and that he thinks really he is uniquely suited to do, that his charges really need him to do. You know, throughout the film, it's very interesting because while Hobie Doyle is sort of this accelerant and and the person that really solves the crime, the film doesn't happen without Mannix. Mannix is at the core of all of these decisions. And it really shows that, and you know, true or not, but in the in the world of the film, none of this stuff happens without him, right? It all falls apart. Yeah. Good reminder that Hollywood is a producer's town. Yeah. Somebody has to keep all the balls in the air. Air. You can't do it otherwise. And indeed, you know, Mannix has all of these people working for him. You know, there's a dignity in being the boss. You That's talk, right. they listen. You say things, they do it. But it also means all of their problems are on your shoulders, and that's 24-7. Baird Whitlock, and, yeah, Baird Whitlock comes into his office and starts trying to lecture him on some bullshit Marxism stuff, and he walks across the office, and he smacks him across the face, and he's like, you go out there and do your job. And this is the decision that he himself has made. You know, you can imagine at a spiritual level, and those they're amazing scenes when he's in confession, but essentially it's the same thing that his communication with with God or the priest has sort of revealed to him. You, Eddie Mannix, go do your job. And then he comes back to the studio. Baird Whitlock has been saved. Baird, go do your job. Uh, exactly, right? That's uh, it. And it means keep America going, right? He says, That's right. The studio has done well by all of us. We're, we are all in this together. There's a hierarchy, and comics yeah. hate that, or writers don't like where they sit in the hierarchy. But the thing is, it does work for everybody. And yeah. there's, uh, and, and if you're not, you know, incredibly silly or parochial, you can tell that there's a whole world out there outside of America, and it's not working as well. Yeah, and uh, it's a hierarchy. It can always power. get worse. Yeah. But, there, but, you know, let's talk about hierarchy for a minute, and then I think we're, we're almost done. But, but let's talk about hierarchy, right? Like, Baird exists in a hierarchy of, of power and money and influence, just like Hobie exists in a hierarchy and has climbed his way up. Just as you articulated in terms of his career path, like, he has found his way up that hierarchy because of competence, because of natural power and beauty and skill. Right. And not because of words. I mean, sure, you could say he's a he's a good singer, but, that you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't put those two things in the same category. You know, he's got good instincts. He's got good uh, reaction, you know, physical re- reaction ability. He's got all of these things that I think make a man better ideal, you know, towards the ideal of, of power and of beauty, whereas. You know, the physiognomy, you know, physiognomy is real. You like look at the physiognomy of these sniveling little screenwriters, you know, and it, and it starts right, right when they kidnap Whitlock. These guys are not physical specimens. No one's going to make them the main character in the film. Yeah, beauty matters. So I think uh, we can wrap up our conversation here and encourage people to, uh, to to watch this movie or watch it again and think about it again to see that. It's so much of America since the mid-century is put into this. 
And you can see in the example of the Coen brothers that you don't have to be satisfied with Hollywood, but you don't have to turn into a commie spy either. You don't have to turn into progressive or woke shit. You know, it's a somewhat ironic movie. They're aware that they too are writers. They made it to director. They're not a big deal in Hollywood. They don't make the big money. They're not, you know, impressive in, in, in the way stars or big studios or big money is impressive. But there's a kind of dignity in knowing better and in doing your job, what you're fitted to do that makes America work better. It's what you should be doing. And there's also, you know, the personal satisfaction, the freedom to figure things out as best you can. That's what uh, serious people, unlike these writers, do. You don't have to agree, but you do have to accept that to an extent. You have to make your peace with how America works by seeing that there is a wholeness, like the picture, like the studio system, everything you see in this picture. It gives you a vision of America as a whole. It works. There is a kind of coherence to it. And so long as you understand that, it makes perfect sense to move on with your part of it. It's a maximum of moderation. There's also a maximum of justice. Mind your business. If you do Do that well you will be pretty happy. And exactly, at the basic level, that means, uh, you know, when the bosses do your job, you, you do your job. Now, you can negotiate for uh, salaries, perks, whatever, and you can always find another boss, you can get another job, but then you will still have to do that job. That part is inescapable, and people who are resentful about that just live in fantasy land. They think words can replace deeds. And as Mannix and Hobie Dover show, no, they don't, and they can't. Sooner or later, you run into that. Exactly right. All right, Joshua. Thanks much for joining me. I'm glad that you love this movie as much as I do, and that makes for uh, such fun conversation. And I hope people take our example and uh, go discover. You know, there's so much charm to the picture, so much fun, so many quotable lines, different characters. And, uh, you know, it might make you uh, like America a little better, actually. So, yeah, it's a bit surprising that it got made, but I'm glad. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Titus. This was really fun. All the best until next time. Bye-bye.